The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. We are talking about, in this series, Acts. Acts of the Apostles. And we've got now to chapter 6. In fact, this week you're going to get two for the price of one. Because it's 6 and 7. And the reason that it's 6 and 7 is that we're going to be talking and looking at the life of Stephen. And his story, as you may well know, spans the two chapters. Chapter 6 and chapter 7. So we're going to look at that this morning. I hope you might have had a chance to read it. Because you'll know that most of chapter 7 is Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin. uh, And we can't spend the time going through the whole thing. And so hopefully you've read it. And you've got some grasp. If you haven't, doesn't matter. You probably have known the story. But if you don't even, then I hope I can fill in the gaps and cover that for you. Um, well, Stephen. Well, what do you know about Stephen? I guess you probably know that he was the first Christian to die for his faith, his faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, he died in a rather horrific way. And it all comes at a time when this new church, this fledgling church, is starting to suffer significant persecution. We heard last week, didn't we, about the fact that, uh, that, that there was the story of an Ananias and Sapphira. That was within the church. But they are starting to see a seasonal change and a shift in the church. Up till this point, we could say that the city of Jerusalem had been pretty much tolerant to the way of the church. In fact, more than that, I think they'd actually been favorable to them. And uh, also, as far as the religious authorities were concerned, they too were showing tolerance. Would you think, really? But they seemed to be going through that season. But now it is all change, and everything is changing significantly. If you are reading this in alignment with the series, you may remember that in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, that the apostles had been preaching in the name of Jesus, they'd been arrested, they'd been put in prison, they'd been poured in front of the legal authorities, and they'd been beaten for this preaching in this name. So things were changing. And not only that, we're told in Scripture that a significant number of priests were being added to their number. And not only that, but it could be considered that there was around about 5,000 men who had now committed themselves to the church. And that is, of course, then in addition to that, which Scripture doesn't always give us the number, of the women and the children. So there we have it. The tolerance level, because they see these people are growing in number, is at an end. We're not having it anymore. So in the first chapter, the first part of chapter 6, we first read of some of the difficulties that the church was experiencing that time. And the second part then focuses on this young man, Stephen. Chapter 7, as I've said, is all about his so-called trial before the Sanhedrin. It's about his speech that he brings before that council. It's about then his execution for his faith. The story of Stephen 
in terms of what we know and what we're told about him, is very short, but it's intense. There is no doubt that it's highly intense. What do we know about Stephen? Well, I can tell you this. He was thought to be a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew. Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were the Jews that at some time previous, at whatever time scale we're talking about, had left Jerusalem. And they'd moved to the surrounding Gentile nations. Uh, most of those surrounding Gentile nations actually spoke Greek. So they were Greek-speaking. And at some point, many of them had come back to Jerusalem. And they were now living back in Jerusalem. They spoke the Greek language still. And, well... The name Stephanos, which we get our Stephen, is indeed Greek. Amen? So that's how we get it. And then we read this. We're going to read at chapter 6, 1 to 4. In those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So... I guess the Hellenistic Jews at this point would have been the minority, okay? I guess the, the, the Hebraic Jews would be the majority of those that are made up in the early part of the church. But it, it, seems, it, it clearly seems in Scripture that, that the elderly widows from the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Now, I can't imagine that this was anything other than an oversight. Okay, it's one of those things that happened. It wasn't deliberate, it's an oversight. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's typical, isn't it? Where people are gathered, where people are, there will naturally be problems. It's, it, it's called a fact of life. And I would say here, people, people travel around churches, going from one church, there is no perfect church. And there is no perfect family. Because why? It's made up of imperfect people, like you and me. And it's, so it was that even though the power of the Spirit was very much at work on this church, there were problems. So, what did the twelve decide to do? They said, well, look, guys, go, they didn't choose, go and select among yourselves seven guys who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And so they are to take charge of the distribution of food and such like matters, and so that the twelve could concentrate on the word and prayer. I think it's a very interesting stipulation that the apostles said they are to be men filled with spirit and wisdom. Because the Acts of the Apostles, the whole book of Acts, is really about the Acts of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It is. Everywhere you look, everything you read in this book is about what the Holy Spirit is doing, what the Spirit has equipped men to do, and what he's about. And so it's really about the acts of the Holy Spirit. I know it's about Paul, it's about Peter, it's about Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and all those other people. But listen, they were all empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the exploits that they were able to do. It was about his equipping, the Spirit's equipping. It's about the Spirit's direction. It's about the Spirit's power working on men and women in this church. 
Okay, so we've got seven deacons, because that's what they're going to be called. And they're selected, presumably, they then go about their, their, their food distribution services. But it says of Stephen this. It says of Stephen this, again. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. Stephen basically starts to stand out. He's one of seven, but he starts to stand out. We're not told what wonders he does. We're not told what miracles he performed. We just don't know that. But one thing Scripture wants us to know is that he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to do so. I guess Stephen was one, if not the first, one of the first to perform miracles that was not the apostles, okay? Outside of that, he was one of the first Christian believers to be able to do this and empowered to do this. Well, Scripture tells us he got into debate. He got into debate with a group of guys that were from the, the synagogue of the freed men. He got into debate about what he believed in his faith and expressing his faith in this synagogue of the freed men. Now, what the synagogue was, as the name suggests... It's guys that had secured their freedom somewhere across the Roman Empire. At some point, they had been slaves. They'd secured their freedom. They're back in Jerusalem. They've gathered together as like-minded guys in a synagogue, and they give it the title of the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Okay, so that's the background of that. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and Stephen leaves them in no doubt that this is the God that they're serving. This is the one that they are putting their faith in. And these guys are threatened. They're threatened because you are speaking against our long-held beliefs about Mosaic law and about what we put in our religious ways. And so what, what they were saying is that we, we, what we can't do now is we can't put Christianity as another wacky sect that's flourished, it's grown up, but it'll wither, it'll die, it'll go away, let it just take its own course. They can't do that anymore because of the way these guys are speaking. And the covenant of God is new, they're declaring. It is not the old. Well, Scripture tells us that basically they couldn't hold a candle to Stephen's wisdom. They couldn't hold a candle to his ability to be able to expound the Scriptures and to tell them from Scripture who Jesus was. So, what do they do? They do what we read about so much in other parts of Scripture, what human nature has a tendency to do if it can't get its own way. They try to manipulate things. And we're told that they basically get hold of, they lean upon, or they probably pay, some scoundrels, some good-for-nothings to say, say that he was blasphemy. He's blaspheming. And that he is telling, he was, he's blaspheming against Moses, he's blaspheming against God. So they cheat. They basically have that way. Listen, I've got to just tell you, but when our efforts, when our desire is to follow Jesus, when our desire is to serve his kingdom, when is his desire is to do that in your own ministry or as part of this church's ministry, you will face opposition. Why do we face opposition? Because when we decide to put our all in seeing God's kingdom advanced, opposition will rise up and it will confront us. So you may have already experienced that, but the more that we call upon that name, 
the more opposition there will be. Well, Stephen is seized. They can't have this any longer. They lay hold of him because of this false blasphemy title, and they frog march him off to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is a council that put Jesus to death, and it has the same power over every man and every woman. The false witnesses continued with their false claims, and then it says, then it says this, key thing, who, the men and women who were looking at, G, at Stephen, who had their eyes set on him, saw that his face shone like the face of an angel. An incredible thing to have written. What an amazing thing for Luke, who wrote the book of Acts for us, to record. His face shone like the face of an angel. I'll tell you what I like to do in Scripture. I like to, when I've read Scripture, especially when you're reading something about something, an event or a situation, I like, I like to put it down occasionally. And then I like just to imagine. I put myself there. I put myself in as, a, as somebody observing. Not as somebody in knowledge, but someone looking on. I try to imagine the sights. I try to imagine the smells. I try to imagine the, the, the feeling, the, the, what is happening pretending I don't know what is happening. And it's a great way of, 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 of being able to get into the Scripture, especially when you read about things like this, Stephen suddenly being before the Sanhedrin. And I, and I think it doesn't take much imagination to realize this is a highly charged atmosphere. This you can almost cut the atmosphere with a knife. Because these guys from the, from the synagogue of the freedmen, they've, they've, they've taken Stephen before the mighty council that is the Sanhedrin, and he's there. It's under false pretenses. It's, 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 it's there. There's no escape. And these guys must have thought, we've got him. There's no way out. <laughs> he's not going to get out of this. We have him root branch and we have him completely. Yet for Stephen, the peace of God. The peace of God is dwelling in him, over him. There is an absence, it would seem, of fear, of foreboding. He is in a really horrific situation now but there is nothing like that. I think an angel knows nothing of anger, of bitterness, of resentment. I don't think an angel can think those ways, do you? And this is how Stephen was. He was just there. The, the, I, just, I guess he learned from Jesus. He'd, you remember Jesus before Pilate? He just learned from his Savior about being patient in circumstances of injustice and wrongdoing. And that's exactly the circumstances he faced. And there were no dark, fearful, contorting lines on his face thinking, I just go. There was nothing there. It says his face shone with an inner strength. I, I, I don't have any trouble believing that, that that face was shining because of the indwelling and the power of the Spirit. I have no trouble with that whatsoever. And we've got to remember also, although he is there, he's got this, these people baying in on him, it wasn't just Stephen that they were opposing. There was one standing alongside him that was giving him power and strength and the ability to face his accusers with this shining inner strength. The power of the Holy Spirit was alive and upon this man. So the high priest, just before, like Jesus, the high priest says, what do you make of these accusations that these men are bringing against you? Do you remember how Jesus was silent before his accusers? 
And Stephen doesn't go, these are accusations of false. There is nothing in this at all. This is complete and utter nonsense. I have been wrongly accused. No. He says, he just, he t- he's just filled with the Spirit and he commences what can only be an amazing God-breathed speech then to the Sanhedrin and to those assembled in that place. He, he delivers a retelling, effectively, of the whole of salvation's story. That's what he does. And his speech contains all sorts of references. He brings about Abraham. He brings about Isaac. He talks about Jacob. He talks about Joseph. He talks about Moses. And then he talks about the great events of the Bible. He talks about the the beginning of the covenant. He speaks in his speech about the flight to Egypt. He speaks in his speech about Moses' calling. He speaks in his speech about the delivery to the promised land. He speaks in his speech to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It's, it's, it's actually a relatively short address in terms of a speech, even though it's whole of chapter 752 verses. And although it's very descriptive, although he is passionate about what he speaks about, there's no blasphemy. There's no blasphemy about the Old Testament. There's no blasphemy about Moses. There's no blasphemy about God. He basically tells in his speech what any one of them would have heard as the scrolls are unrolled in the, in the synagogues week by week and, and that this truth had been told. He just told the story as it was. But he has a, a significant final message to bring to those that are listening. And it's in chapter 7, between 51 and 53. He says this, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it all my days. He then goes on to declare in uh, verse 56, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I'll say it again. There was no blasphemy. There was no blasphemy spoken. But when he said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Lord, ready to rule, ready to come again, ready to reign, they could take it no longer. No more words. They grabbed him. They seized him. They laid hold of him. They dragged him out of the Sanhedrin. They dragged him through the streets. They dragged him out of the city gates. They dragged him out beyond the walls. And they picked up rocks and they picked up stones And they were ready to stone him, having first laid their clothes down at the feet of a young man called Saul. Stephen then prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He then fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen faced up to his stoning with such grace, with such strength, with such ability. Unlike Jesus, he said, Lord, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. Listen, stoning, I don't need to tell you this, is the most horrendous and most vicious, most horrific way in which to be executed. 
Could you just imagine it for a second as those rocks and stones are hurled and rain down on you? That is what he faced. But they says he fell asleep. <laughs> Falling asleep, of course, is a, is, a, is, a, is a euphemism for dying. Of course you know that. But what it actually means, and I think the reason that Luke used this phrase, is that he wants to express, for those whose faith is in Christ, death is temporary. Death is only temporary, and that it's not permanent, and that we will rise, and that we will have new bodies, and that we will reign with him in glory. Amen? Amen. And that is what he's trying to get across in something that to you, and fall asleep when you're being stoned, I think that's what it comes across, is that it gives that hope. Do you know, I often wonder what sort of impact Stephen's stoning had upon young man Saul, soon to be, as we know, to become Paul, the great, uh, the great advancer of the, of, the, of the church. When he watched and when he heard Stephen, certainly when he heard him cry out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But then he just fell asleep. Paul went on to suffer very, very, very many things, we know, in his ministry, at the hands of very angry men at various different times. He lists it, doesn't he? How many times he's been beaten, how many times he's been scourged, how many times he faced persecution at the hands of man. I wonder how many times he reflected back when he stood there on that day, seeing this first Christian martyr suffer and yet cry out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I wonder how many times he drew strength himself from the empowering of the Holy Spirit from what he'd seen from that young man in all those years previous. I think it was significant in his life. What can we learn about the life of Stephen? Three points, three quick points. Three quick points. First of all, filled with wisdom filled with wisdom. The scripture refers twice in chapter 6 that Stephen was a man full of wisdom. 6.3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. 6.10, but they could not stand up against his wisdom. Where does spiritual wisdom come from? Well, I think it's fair to say, I think it's very fair to say that in our day and age, and particularly in Western culture, people have decided to, to, to lean and to trust themselves and the system that surrounds them. They do not trust and rely upon God. I think that's fair to say. However, God has always said, for those who are prepared to humble themselves, for those who are prepared to come, for those that are prepared to open themselves up, I will give you a spirit of knowledge and wisdom that goes beyond, far beyond, far beyond the values, the priorities, and the understanding of this world. That is the promise of God. What am I alluding to? You know it. It's the Word of God. The word of God. Stephen was full of wisdom. Do we think that is solely a God-given gift to Stephen? Yeah, I, I think in part it was. I do genuinely think in part it was. However, I think it was more likely that he has this wisdom through his knowledge of the scriptures, his knowledge of the things of God, his diligent study of scripture, how else would he have been able to stand in front of the Sanhedrin at no prior notice 
and give an account so accurate and so precise and so good about an analysis, effectively, of, of, of Jewish history. He didn't have three weeks' notice to do some notes and to get it together. He was just dragged before the Sanhedrin and spoke so eloquently and right on point. What a fine example Stephen was of what Paul himself later goes on to tell Timothy in, in Timothy 2 Timothy 2.15, where he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. How can we grow in spiritual wisdom? Well, first of all, you've got to desire it. You've got to want it. It's no good. It's, oh, just Lord, just give it to me. We have to desire a closer relationship with God. We have got to put ourselves in the way of wanting what God gives and to read, to study, and to immerse ourselves in the Scripture. Look, you're regularly told from this platform not to give over and forget the Word of God. And, and, and in a sense, I don't make any apology for, for bringing this up again this morning. The more we know the character of God, the more we will know his ways. The more we know his ways, the more we'll be able to be used. The more that we're able to be used, the more victory we will see. The more victories we'll see, we will see greater opportunities in our daily lives and in our family and in our, our, our friends, in our colleagues, in our neighbors, in our stranger encounters. These are exceptional times. These are exceptional times. So it's important, therefore, that we grow and we do not just back off from attaining the spiritual wisdom and knowledge that God has freely offered to us. And the only way that we can do that is through the word of God. Amen? So he was filled, Stephen, with this wisdom. Second, filled with forgiveness. Stephen was filled with forgiveness. As he looked upon the faces, those incensed faces, who were standing there with rocks and stones, ready with all their might to cast at his head and body, oh, my days, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What? When we forgive, when we forgive, we choose to allow love to take priority over our heart and emotions when we choose to forgive. You've probably heard the saying, I've heard it, and I always think it's so exact, that the one who chooses not to forgive is like one who takes a draft of poison and then waits to see other people die. <laughs> it's so descriptive and it is so true. That is exactly what happens. Refusing to let go of anger, refusing to let go of resentment, refusing to let go of the past, refusing just injures ourselves. And it just injures us in so very many, many, many ways. It injures us in our walk with God because it puts a barrier in that place. It says in Proverbs 10:12, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. Stephen was not getting out of this. He was facing certain death. He was facing his maker. He knew his accusers had wrongly judged him. He knew that. It, it, it was a chain of events that had a knock-on effect from the time that he gets false accusations about his blasphemy to right to this point. Yet, he doesn't hold it against them. He says, Lord, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. You know, we know what he's done is effectively mirrored the words of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Lord, do not hold this against them. 
And Stephen knew through the supreme example that is Jesus Christ how to forgive. God wants us to forgive. God desires that we should forgive. And it's a part of what Stephen did. And effectively, it was his final words. Speaking forgiveness. Finally, point three, filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith. We are left in no doubt at any point when we read about the life of Stephen that he was a young man filled with the Holy Spirit and in faith. Everything that you and I receive from God, from the moment you give your life to Christ to the moment we die, is received in faith. It's received in faith. Habakkuk tells us in 2 Habakkuk, at verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. It is about faith. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Scripture tells us we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? It says that. Paul alludes to this. In fact, alluded speaks very directly at it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we were all baptized by the one Spirit. And in Ephesians 1.13, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. And that seal is the promised Holy Spirit. So when we come to faith, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. However, there is a continuance to it. There is an ongoing nature to being filled by the Holy Spirit. To empower you, to equip you, to anoint you, to give you the strength to be able to do exploits in the name of Jesus that you can't do in your own strength. It's an ongoing thing. And we continually say, Lord, Holy Spirit, come. We need you. We want you. We are, we, are, we are flimsy without you. Pastor William, two weeks ago, when he was preaching on chapter 4, alluded to it. He spoke about this, didn't he? It's about the, the filling and then the refilling. And then he said, oh, look, there's, there's all sorts of experts in theology who, 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 who wrestle with this. And go, well, yeah, but you're filled with the Spirit. So how can you be sort of filled with the Spirit as a Christian thereafter? And he said, there was, one, there was one theologian who said, listen, we're leaky. We need it. We leak the Holy Spirit. And amen, that's right, we do. And so there is this filling of the Spirit, and yet there is this re-anointing and this empowering and equipping that Stephen clearly was, that allows us to be the men and women that we can be. And you cannot think that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something as a bit of a bolt-on to your Christian life. What do I mean? Well, I, I, in the times that I need it, in those times when, 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 when I need to sort of like, oh, Holy Spirit, be with me. Oh, I need to pray. It's not like that. It cannot be like that. The Holy Spirit is prayed for and comes to us so that we have a resource daily for our lives, for every conversation, daily in our lives, for every situation and circumstance. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we seek and that he wants to come. Because he seeks to oversee our lives, to take control? No. To direct you and to encourage you and to bless you and to support you and to give you that increase in faith and hope of the one that you serve. It was a Holy Spirit day here last, last Saturday uh, at the Alpha Course. And, 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 and we, we got the opportunity to pray for people who wanted to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And a lot is said in the Alpha Course video about emotional experience. You know what I'm going to say? Because when you are in the presence of the Spirit, very often it can be laughter, it could be tears, it could be shouting out, it could be, oh, I feel a bit wobbly, it could be falling over. 
There's all different ways that you can possibly experience things emotionally. Let's put it that way. But that's not, that's not a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The sign of being Holy Spirit is coming in faith. Lord, you have said, I choose to put myself in the way of what you say you will give me, how you will anoint me, how you will equip me, how you will provide. Greater filling of the Holy Spirit is what you and I need. Do you need filling with the Holy Spirit? I know I do. I need, I need you, Lord. Can I do it in my strength? No, can't do it in my strength. Do you seek to be equipped by the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you long to see him working out his strength in your life day by day amongst your colleagues, family, friends and the like? I can't do it in my strength. We're going to ask in faith because God delivers. His promises are yes and amen and he wants to give us the Holy Spirit. And so that's available to us, I believe, in faith for anyone who asks today. Look, we are ordinary men and women. I'm sorry if you think yourself different than ordinary, but you are. You are an ordinary man and woman. But when the Holy Spirit is in us, on us, through us, he can fortify us with grace and power, the like of which takes us out of the ordinary category. Amen? What's the key? The key is to ask. The key is always to ask. Ask to be filled in a greater measure. And as we do that, we will see that God can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine because that's who he says he is. And that's the one you've come in here to worship this morning, the one who can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. But the power of God is available for where two or three are gathered, there the Lord Jesus is as well. And that we need to be fortified and strengthened by him. If you want to be receiving this morning of an equipping that comes from God, then you, sitting in your homes, I invite you, if you can, to stand, to open your hands and to say, Lord, I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. I invite you in the power and in the name of Jesus to strengthen, to gird, to uphold, and to invigorate my heart, my faith, my life, that I might serve you, that I might know the indwelling strength that only you bring, and that you may receive that which is to be freely given as the Holy Spirit comes. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.